Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Washington is back to playing debt and budget roulette as America surpassed more than 700,000 COVID fatalities. An update on air travel as the world steadily gets back to normal and gets steadily more concerned about China uh, and its course in Asia. To that end, military and commercial takeaways from China's Zhuhai Air Show and Boeing lands a $24 billion C-17 transport sustainment deal from the United States Air Force, Uh, this and much more. Joining us as they do every week to discuss all this and more are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch in sunny New Jersey, Sash Tusa of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Ablafia of the Teal Group Consultancy right here uh, in what is a beautiful uh, Washington, D.C. Everybody, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah, thanks very much indeed, Vago. Happy sunny day, Vago. Uh, indeed, and I should point out uh, that Sash is actually uh, hurtling toward uh, b- back toward London uh, in in a car. So if you if the audience noticed something slightly different from the normal uh, extraordinary audio that we get from Sash, that's uh, that's what's going on. Uh, before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy, and Rafael USA sponsors our coverage of the upcoming Association of the United States Army's annual meeting in Washington, D.C. Ron, start us off uh, on on the week. Where are investors' uh, heads? Uh, And China is beginning to loom large in every conversation. I know you've been having conversations with both investors uh, as well as your sources here in Washington, D.C. about what the budget outlook looks like. Walk us through what's on your mind about where we are and where we're going and where investors' heads are, whether it's on inflation uh, or you know, the, the debt and budget roulette we're playing. Obviously, everybody knows that the budget uh, government will stay open on a temporary funding measure through December the 3rd, but there's no debt deal. Uh, a lot of negotiations on the $1.2 trillion investment uh, infrastructure, bipartisan infrastructure package, and then the $3.5 trillion Democratic uh, initiative, right? I mean, so there are a lot of themes here uh, that can either reassure or concern investors. Walk us through where the market's head was last week. Yeah, so we, we saw we saw some more volatility. Um, if you look at where the S&P was on the week, the S&P was down um, a little over 2%. A lot of that had to do with uh, trading activity outside of our space in, in the tech world and other things. Um, if, if you look more specifically in our world, you know, Boeing is a bellwether. bellwether. It was up about 2%. Lockheed Martin was roughly flat. flat. Um, and if you look at other industrials, maybe jump over, look at GE, um, it was up about 2%. So we saw you know, some of the industrial names do a little bit better. Um, the defense group was relatively flat in a market that was uh, broadly down. Um, a couple comments, you know, oil prices are kind of still in the mid to high 70s. They've been bouncing around. But most notably on the week, interest rates started to really move up again. At one point during the week, interest rates hit about uh, 1.5% on the 10-year and that was up um, from just you know 1.3% um, just, just a week ago, right? So rates really started to move this week. And I think one thing on the forefront of investors' minds is, is inflation. Two, I think there was a lot of focus on, on the back and forth on the infrastructure deal and um, also the, uh, uh, the Build Back Better plan and, and what was going to go on there. I think at least temporarily um, what's going on in the hills kind of out of investors' minds for the moment because December in the current market is an eternity away. 
Um, on on the on the Washington front, you know, I, I had some conversations this week, and I think what's interesting and maybe not in investor minds yet is it looks like, um, and this isn't that much of a surprise, that FY22, when it's all said and done, could come in around, um, you know, t- somewhere between 25 to 50 billion above the president's uh, requests. And let's just bogey, say 35 billion above. And that's probably going to be the starting point of what the administration asked for next year, which implies they've already given some early guidance that they're going to kind of go backwards on that and kind of bump up the early guidance. One of the big themes that has come out in conversations is post uh, the Afghan situation, the administration doesn't want to appear weak on defense. So they'll probably start the budget talks next year at where the budget is finalized this year and then let Congress, just like they did this year, decide, all right, we're going to bump it up or bump it down or, or, or however. But if you look at the votes across both um, Armed Services committee, Committees and what the House did in appropriations, you really do have bipartisan support for defense. Um, and um, obviously, there there is a lot of concern uh, because the Chinese are becoming a lot more aggressive, whether it's against Taiwan, whether it's against the Philippines, obviously, the rhetoric, as we discussed on Friday's show, uh, directed toward Japan uh, as, as well. And, and this sort of concern that actually China may be peaking and actually, you know, something which I've worried about for a long time becomes actually more, more dangerous unless they can see definitively that we have capabilities that will deter them. I remember a conversation last year with uh, uh, General Jim McConville, the chief of staff of the army, and I asked him, how large do you think our, how, you know, how big is our window? Uh, how long is our window where we have to meaningfully start deterring uh, China? And I remember at the time he said two years, right? So we're one year uh, into that. And clearly I'm going to be following up with him at, uh, at AUSA uh, next week. Uh, Sash, lead us off on where European investors are. You've been getting a lot of questions about China uh, as well. Uh, we have Brexit. Uh, related uh, issues, whether it's fuel shortages or anything else uh, hitting the UK, there are broader supply chain issues. This as air travel sort of starts to get more back to normal. Walk us through all of these these themes. Um, and, and we're going to be talking separately about the Zuhai uh, air show, which you've been tracking exceptionally uh, closely uh, as well. But give us sort of the macro investor take uh, and, and where you think investors heads are over, over the week and where we're going. Try to deal with there's really three different points there. I mean, on China, um, two, you know, and this is this is not clearly a, a broad investor swell of opinion, but but you know, to have two European-based investors who have asked for our opinion, and I'm paraphrasing now, where could stuff go wrong? Where could accidents happen? Where could or how could the US and China miscalculate? and hence end us in a place that none of us want to be. And then their question is, and, you know, given us, given those scenarios, what do investors need to do to put a bit of protection in their portfolios? If indeed they can put any protection in their portfolios. Actually, I suspect they can't. I think you could be massively long of a lot of defence stocks and your portfolio would still uh, do really badly in equities um, if there is a miscalculation between China and, and the US. But... Um, uh, but you know, maybe not. Maybe there is an optimum uh, equity holding that would sort of inoculate inoculate you against that. But that was interesting. You know, we we haven't had investors asking us so clearly. You know, where do the mistakes happen, and what ha- what happens next? Um, so let's come back to, to sort of Europe now, and you know, European economies. I mean, our, our take in terms of European air travel is, yeah, it's normalising, but it's normalising. It's sort of down on the summer peaks. 
and we're heading into the you know the shoulder month. Or in fact, we're we're in well into the shoulder months, and then heading down again. So the recovery is rather stalled uh, at the moment. Long haul travel is going to start to recover. It's going to be really interesting to see what happens once airlines are flying heavily across the Atlantic. We've actually booked our first marketing trip across the Atlantic in two years. Can't wait to come and see uh, our US, some of our US clients. Um, but the airlines are still being pretty cautious about sort of capacity that they put on there. And then a bit of a cautionary tale, um, most tales are actually from the UK, but a bit of a cautionary tale about what happens when you get capacity and supply wrong. Uh, and there's clearly a, a Brexit overtone or undertone to this. But um, the UK has had fuel shortages in parts of the UK, particularly in the southeast this week. It's amazing how if you say there's a shortage of petrol, everybody goes out to buy petrol. Um, I know it's human nature, but there have, you know, gas stations, you call them, have been running dry. Uh, now, you know, we're, we're returning. We've done probably a thousand miles in the last, uh, uh, last week and a half or so. And we've managed to get the fuel we wanted. But it's made for astonishing headlines, really quite depressing uh, photographs. And it's a, that's been a problem of a lack of uh, uh, lorry drivers delivering the stuff. It's not actually a, a lack of fuel. It's just getting that to the stations in time. And of course, gas stations carry much less in the way of stock than they would have done once upon a time. So they run dry within 24 hours if uh, everybody queues outside them. Broader lesson, that's what happens to supply chains in an upturn when people miscalculate the, uh, the sort of demand they want. We haven't yet seen a knock-on to the aerospace industry, for example, but it's, it's possible, isn't it? Richard, what's, what, what's on your mind that you think everybody ought to be paying attention to? Well, I think it's definitely China. You know, I mean, you're exactly right. You know, this declining power narrative is not one that people expected. And I think what you're seeing here is the very crux of what is both making defense companies, pure play defense companies, rather happy, and what is making commercial companies, especially pure play commercial, if there's any such a beast left, rather unhappy because you know you're taking what was the biggest single export market in the world creating enormous uncertainties over its future growth rates and indeed it's a desire and ability to take any jets now at this point um, and turning it into something that is merely something you you plan for and this seems to be happening thick and fast you know just a, a few weeks ago George Soros wrote an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal saying, boy, things are deteriorating fast and it's not conceivable. We're going to be at war just like that. And that, of course, is George Soros on the liberal side of things and definitely a globalist if ever there was one in, in, in a good sense of the word. And uh, all of this, I think, is, is, is having a bit of a whiplash impact upon the industry. Uh, so it could be that we get to a point where they do recertify the max, you know, and, and think, but it, it doesn't look anything like it did before. And we're talking about a massive reorientation of the market when all of a sudden 25% of demand for jetliners, what was expected to be 25%, either goes its own way or just relies on what it's got and ceases to be a consumer-oriented economy. I mean, this is a major change in, in just about everything going on right now. I should point out, right, I mean, this is the philosophical uh, concern, right? She's view is... 
uh, the more communist China becomes, the more economically productive it's going to be, as opposed to having the diametrically opposite effect. And that's what's happening, right? The wolf warrior diplomacy, all of the statements, uh, the turning on uh, Chinese uh, billionaires all has a cooling effect, ultimately, uh, right? I mean, the technological theft concerns among them. Uh, and then you end up in a situation where it is us and them, and, and the Chinese economy needs all of us in order to keep growing, right? And, and now it's sort of halfway through Get, getting the entire population to a higher economic point, right? I mean, they're sort of halfway through that uh, endeavor uh, at this point, but they also have developed a lot of military capabilities. So at some point they could lash out if they realize that they're peaking now and they might as well move now before the United States and its allies really uh, get their military act to, to, together. History doesn't repeat itself, but it certainly um, tends to rhyme. Sash, I'm I'm gonna uh, jump uh, to you. One one with a quick Brexit uh, follow up. Uh, not not to put you on the spot, but I get you to comment on certainly the narrative that's happening on this side of the Atlantic is that COVID helped cover up a lot of the challenges. Right, 1.3 million uh, folks left the United Kingdom uh, during the pandemic and went back to wherever they came from. A lot certainly in Europe, and that's caused you know labor shortfalls across the country. Obviously, uh, the um, you know, government is issuing new visas for truck drivers and 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 the like. But are there broad, you know, did did COVID mask other sorts of challenges that may be coming to the fore right now? And do they at all affect aerospace and defense ultimately? Probably don't affect aerospace and defense, not not immediately, and perhaps not for a long time. I think it's too early to say whether COVID actually hid covered up uh, a large number of the of, of the flaws of Brexit. And here's why. Um, I mean, the UK is in a very old position. The economy is growing pretty well at the moment. I think it's about 5% last quarter. The, um, we have uh, about a million job vacancies, which out of a workforce of 40 probably is a loss. Now, I mean, that's, that's more vacancies than there's been for you know, many, many, many years. But until uh, the beginning of this week, we had well over a million people still on furlough. Um, at, it's impossible right. for the people still on furlough to map straight onto all those job vacancies and the, uh, the um, uh, heavy goods vehicle, uh, you know, the lorry drivers is a classic case in, in point, you know, that is a skilled job that needs, you know, uh, courses of instruction and testing before you're let out on the road to uh, wreak the usual havoc. But I don't think we're going to know until sometime next year, actually, whether there were structural uh, problems that, that were hidden. One of the discussions clearly we've been having offline, which is, uh, is it possible to, uh, combination of upscale, but probably just, just pay better wages for jobs, which we have been very reliant on, uh, on very low cost, very low wage labor in some cases uh, from Europe. Was that fair? Can we compensate for that? Can we increase wages and ultimately bring people uh, to do the, into, back into the labor market again? Or actually, are we going to have to exit some parts of uh, the, you know, the lowest wage parts of our, our uh, economy because we can't substitute for the cheap Eastern European labor? I don't think we're going to learn so well into next year. Um, let me uh, take you uh, to the Zuhai Air Show. You followed that more closely than anybody else. I know both on the military and the commercial side. Um, that's something. That's a show that you've always prided yourself on attending. Uh, obviously, couldn't do that uh, this time around because of COVID. Walk us through what the key takeaways on the commercial and on the defense side were for you uh, at a critical part, right? We were expecting to see both military and commercial aircraft that we just didn't see. Walk us through what you thought was most interesting. Yeah, okay. Uh, so this was a really odd air show. And frankly, it was underwhelming. 
You'll remember it was due to be held September 2020, right up to the last moment that the Chinese were saying, we're going to hold the Shoot My Air show. And then, I mean, with about a week to go, they cancelled it because of COVID. And then, come this April, they suddenly reinstated it for September 2021. And then, you know, as, as we go to, to press, they're saying, and then we're going to go back to an even year air show, so September 2022 as well. It's a very positive thing. We had assumed, I think quite a lot of other observers have assumed, that the Chinese had at least one and probably more very important public statements, reveals that they wanted to make this year. And that's why they, you know, they were going to use the, the rescheduled July air show to do that. The two best guesses were, number one, uh, certification of the C919. 919 airliner and number two a reveal of the h20 which is the uh believe name for the chinese stealth bomber something you know uh b21 uh, or, or b2 uh in broad appearance and, and function and here's the interesting thing they have this air show neither of those happened actually the flying displays were arguably less good than the flying displays three years ago civil I think the biggest stealth aircraft program in China at the moment isn't H-20. It's the C-919, which didn't appear. So for three air shows in a row, seven years, um, you know, the Chinese have been working on the C-919. They don't bring it to the air show, not even as a static display. The excuse, we're busy with flight tests. Well, I have never known Airbus, however busy they were with flight tests on a major program, not bring aircraft to the Paris air show. This is what air shows are for. So question number one, what's wrong? What's happening with the C919? Um, yeah, they might be busy with flight tests. Put that one aside. I think there's a real possibility that US sanctions are biting. Uh, and the fact that Global Times, which is one of the uh, Chinese media outlets that uh, parrots the, the party's line very, very closely, and as such, it's a must-read, even if you think it's baloney. Um, Global Times has this wonderful... Uh, headline that says, you know, um, uh, non-appearance of C919 doesn't mean US san sanctions are working. Yeah, right. Um, but if that is the case, and if we just go down this thought process for a second, then this makes the um, 737 MAX recertification a pawn in a much broader uh, US-Chinese competition. Uh, and comes back to the point you made earlier on. If the US wants to sell the 737 MAX, and the 737, remember, has peaked at well over 35, uh, well over 30% of all 737 deliveries before the MAX grounding were going to China. 25% of all Boeing's output was going to China. So if Boeing ever wants to get back there, or if the US ever wants to get back there, the Chinese are going to hold Boeing as a hostage until they get the flow of parts and the flow of engines and the flow of subsystems and so forth uh, delivered to COMAC for the C919. So the Chinese are saying, President Biden, born is in your court. That's a really, you know, it was much more blatant this time that that is the game they're playing. Um, the second issue, which is a, a, a minor issue by comparison, but the ARJ21, which we all laugh at because it's a reheated DC9 effectively, but the ARJ21 is starting to look like a real aeroplane. They, del they delivered 20 aircraft last year um, to eight different customers, eight heads, heads of variants. That's impressive. They're going to do the same this year, despite the, the impact of uh, the, you know, the various rounds of COVID. Our, our estimates are they're probably going to get up to 60 a year by mid-decade. 
And again, they are preventing, um, or CAAC is refusing to certify either the A220 or the Embraer E2 jets because there appears to be a policy decision. If there's going to be a regional jet market, COMAC should supply it with the ARJ21. We don't need foreign entrants. And I don't think that Western firms and Western um, governments have realized that the Chinese are being so clear and direct about their uh, civil aviation policy at the moment. And this clearly changes the, uh, the equation in terms of global volumes. Finally, in terms of military stuff, what mattered in terms of military? Um, uh, the flying displays are good. Right? They're there for domestic consumption. Let's be honest. It's the same cookie-cutter stuff every day, a couple of uh, good uh, display teams. The H, sorry, the J-20 jet, most interesting thing there, they only flew two of them, but it was a respectable display, and it was a respectable display with Chinese engines. So the Chinese aero engine industry has just made another small but important step uh, because previously the J-20 was powered by Russian engines, which, you know, crude, smoky, but hell, they worked, uh, and everybody knew they would work, but now they've got a domestic engine, and it's still going to take them a decade before they have a seven engine that works, but you know, they're getting there. And I thought that was very, very important uh, indeed in terms of the big message coming out. But otherwise, a focus on unmanned aerial vehicles. They even flew some at the, at the show, which is fascinating to see how, how you can mix a UAV in with a manned flight display. Um, and uh, a lot of focus on the ground in terms of UAVs and UCAVs, oil wingmen and so, and so forth. Uh, and that's is the sort of message they're wanting to send in terms of technology at the moment. Um, I, I think it uh, also points out that in every single industrial area where the Chinese have put their minds, they've been able to overcome. So this notion they wouldn't be able to do engines, uh, it is a matter of time, but they will be able to do it just as they did it in rail or nuclear power or uh, anything uh, else. I, sh I should point out that uh, Boeing um, uh, benefited from a $24 billion U.S. Air Force contract on the C-17, 240 of them in service uh, uh, in, in the United States Air Force. So it's nice money if, if you can get it. Um, Ron and, and Richard, uh, if you guys want to build on those teams, because Richard, uh, you know, we, we've heard Boeing make statements like this and implore the U.S. government, hey, look, we're really dependent on the Chinese. Uh, we'd really like you to lift uh, sanctions on the Chinese. You know, the, we understand we, the situation of the Uyghurs is bad, but gosh, it's, it's really worse if we can't sell uh, our jets. Um, and, and I'm sure uh, Airbus, the minute that it begins to impinge on, on their business is going to make the same argument, right? I mean, these, these companies are publicly traded companies and they're in the business of, of selling uh, their product. But, but Ron and, and then Richard, uh, take us away because you guys also see um, you know, interesting elements in, in what Sash just said. Uh, Ron, take it away and then Richard. Yeah, Boeing has publicly said that um, uh, they're expecting approval by the Chinese authority by the end of the year. I'm not sure exactly what they're basing that on, but I mean, that's, that's, that's their um, expectation and they've been sticking to it um, clearly. And uh, I mean, I think Richard's pointed this out before that, you know, it's not a technical thing with the airplane, pretty much every other government in the world that has a, uh, an authority for aviation has a, approved the airplane. I don't know if everybody has, but most everybody has. Um, so it's, it's, it's a political, it's clearly a political pawn. Um, our operating assumption in our financial models is, um, that we'll get a, uh, certification early next year. And that's what we're assuming, or we'll have to go back and, um, change our 737 deliveries. 
Um, so, so we'll see, but, um, with, if they can develop an airplane, that's good enough. And if you have the airlines kind of mandated by the state to buy aircraft, it's hard to imagine that the airlines won't buy aircraft. And, and of course, uh, for our audience, uh, just like everybody knows, Sasha's, uh, grandfather clock, you now know, uh, the Epstein's, uh, schnauzer, uh, in, in the background. Um, Richard, uh, t- take us uh, take us away in terms of how you see the dynamic and also how you think uh, business aircraft get involved in this mix, right? I mean, Chinese buy a lot of high-end business jets, uh, Chinese billionaires do, unless Chinese billionaires are, you know, on their way to jail uh, for hoarding uh, resources that should be distributed across the state. That's one of uh, Xi's uh, vision statements as well, right? Create a more equitable uh, society overall. Uh, you know, in, in that he, he has some allies maybe in the U.S. Congress now and how they view this. What is, what is the aggregate impact? Uh, and, and were some of the other uh, points that uh, Sash made that you'd like to build on? Well, um, I would uh, just like to take gentle exception. Uh, <laughs> there's no question that uh, Sash follows UI very closely and has a number of uh, extremely important observations, but one big one. I, I, I don't think the 919's problems have anything to do with sanctions because I don't think sanctions are really a problem. So far, the U.S. government has kept things quite ambivalent. Uh, they've put the military end user list out there. They've not put COMAC on that list, but they've put adjacent companies, AVIC and whatever on that list. Uh, first of all, if there really were sanctions, then Sash's other comments about the ARJ-21 wouldn't be true because that is every bit as, well, <laughs> they're both U.S. planes or Western planes. The value add, pretty much all Western. And if GE can ship CF-34-10 engines to the ARJ-21, they and other suppliers can ship whatever they need to make a couple of C919 prototypes fly. Not a problem at all. Um, And the other point I would make is that when the West does decide to, you know, put the kibosh on the Chinese aircraft program on the basis of sanctions, you know it. And sure enough, about a week ago, the Canadians said, enough of this nonsense. And they basically killed the MA700 turboprop, the regional turboprop analog to the ARJ21, depending on Pratt Canada engines. Canada basically killed the plane. They said, yeah, we've had quite enough. And I think you might see more of that, but I think the 919's problems have nothing to do with any of that. It's strictly just, they're trying to figure out how to, well, buy and to build and fly a plane. It's, it's uh, you know, one of those, simplest explanations are always the correct one or generally the correct one stories. Uh, the other thing about business yet, yeah, really important because it's fascinating. You know, if we'd had the conversation three years ago, China was a problem because they had some brilliant dynamic people like Jack Ma, who, you know, were clearly producing innovative non-state-owned technology-oriented companies. Now it's the opposite. Uh, those state-owned enterprises are taking over uh, the people who created the value-add corporations like Jack Ma that have been known to disappear for mysterious periods of time. They're no longer in the market for a Gulfstream. Gulfstream or any other high-end business jet sales to China have collapsed. And that to me is a, is a fascinating story. They're going again from a fast growth tech-oriented Western wannabe economy to a, well, in a, a society that's decided that you know, that Joseph Stalin, he had a point. So you're not buying a Gulfstream, 
you're getting your mouth jacket to the dry cleaners that or you're looking at property in Vancouver or San Francisco. Those are the things you do if you are a Chinese billionaire. So it's a completely different environment. It's happened very fast. You know, was it fast? It, it unclear. Um, our response to it took a long time. We sort of admired the problem. It's, it's not like he wasn't saying what he's going to do. Um, that shouldn't have come as a surprise. But it, it yet, you know, time and again, we tend to be like, what? They're doing what? And it's like, they've been doing it for a while uh, now, uh, or at least certainly telegraphing where it is they want to go. Sash, do you want to uh, respond uh, to, to any, any of that before we uh, move on? I, th I think Richard's point about what source from C919 is source the ARJ21 is a very, very interesting one. And I mean, that's, that's got me, got me thinking. I mean, I, I'm, uh, and I think you're absolutely right about engines, which is interesting because that does suggest that there, there may be an exception made for, uh, or at least perhaps the, the noose is not tightened around engine supplies. ARJ21 though has been through a number of different uh, production batches each of which has added more Chinese content as they've got through to it. And it may be that as just as, as that process is matured, the, the need to take direct deliveries of as much in the way of systems from the US is diminished. But uh, you know, I think it's a very, very good point. If that's, and you know, if, if we take Richard's uh, thesis, um, then they're using, you know, my conclusion would be then the Chinese are using sanctions as an excuse for, for a problem somewhere else in flight tests from C919. And that is at least as interesting. I'm still not sure they're going to certify the 737 MAX anytime soon, but hey. Ron, talk to us a little bit about how this $24 billion C-17 uh, deal. I want to really quickly talk about three uh, things, uh, defense-related things. Uh, first, uh, the $24 billion Boeing contract. Uh, Richard, I want to get your sense on F-35. And then, Sash, we talked a little bit about Germany, but didn't talk as much about uh, the big defense deal, uh, obviously, between France uh, and Greece and, and what that means, uh, and uh, just other sort of transactions, alliances, and, and what does it mean? Economists had a great story uh, this week on, on the tensions, right, as, as uh, Germany supplies Turkey and France increasingly uh, is, is uh, becoming Greece's partner or Athens's partner of choice. But Ron, start us off on the 24 billion C-17 deal and, and what it means. Yeah, I mean, it, that, that kind of support work is, uh, you know, it's good good work to have, right? I mean, ultimately, um, if you were to pivot to the tanker, uh, Boeing's not going to make any money on delivering actual tankers. But um, when it comes time to support it, if it's not put up for competition or if it is and they were to win it, um, that's the work you want. So um, if you look at uh, the legacy of the C-17 uh, being the prime contractor doing the support work for the aircraft, um, that's a that's a nice program to have. Good size. It's going to last a long time. Um, it's 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 good work to get. Um, you just kind of have to scratch your head sometimes. You got to wonder um, uh, if you know, if that was a competitive contract or not. And you, know, you also have to wonder with the way um, sometimes the you know call it the intellectual property around these platforms are. Um, it's all pitched that the OE has the best you know is the best one to serve uh, in, in terms of a service and support role for. Uh, for these platforms. Um, I, I wish as a taxpayer, I mean, they competed all these things um, uh, and maybe you could get some uh, other players to, to do this kind of work, but uh, be that as it may, um, you know, it's a, it's a good program to have for Boeing and uh, it is something nice to, you know, kind of bolster their defense business at a time where in defense um, they haven't been doing as well as some other peers. 
Richard, uh, talk to us about the takeaway, your F-35 uh, takeaways and what folks ought to be paying attention to. Yeah, it was really interesting. I, you know, everyone had had, everyone who observes the F-35 had had at a uh, max run rate of about 170, 175 a year uh, coming in the next couple of years. And all of a sudden there was an announcement that they'd, quote, rebaselined expectations, um, basically heading to a max of a 156 within a couple of years and staying there for an indefinite period. I think that was the actual quote. That's really strange uh, because, of course, it's about 20 planes light. Um, it doesn't appear to be on the market side, I don't think. I mean, you know, no sooner had the Turkish planes been taken out of the skyline than they were replaced with Polish and others. Um, it looked like water activity was pretty strong, campaign activity very strong. Switzerland obviously being the most recent victory, although not completely sealed yet. So that leaves us with production side. And obviously there have been issues ramping up, especially replacing those Turkish component suppliers and, and whatever else, a couple percent of the value in, uh, in an F-35. But you'd think that would be resolvable in say 18 to 24 months. So I'm a little baffled by this. Um, and again, market, you know, supply side or demand side, I, I really, don't know, but I'm a little, I'm a little, I find it a little strange they use the term for an indefinite period because we actually had, you know, mid 160s, mid 170s for most of the decade. So you're talking about a, you know, a, a noticeable chunk of demand either being pushed into the late 2020s or early 2030s, or maybe there's just some, something going on out there that we don't know about. There's been a baffling lack of explanation here. Ron, uh, why don't I turn to you now, because I know you have an F-35 follow, and then we're going to go uh, to Sash, and then really quickly going to have to get your guys' take on uh, a point that Lockheed uh, Martin CEO Jim Takelet made, uh, very sort of veiled reference about what it is that Skunk Works is working on, several people domestically interested, one international, a lot of speculation about what, you know, Sash, whether that means Tempest and uh, whatever program Skunk Works is working on get together, or it's a reconnaissance capability or what have you. But Ron, give us your quick uh, follow on on Richard's F-35 point. Yeah, just, a, uh, just maybe two quick points. One, um, I heard that Lockheed actually didn't lobby for a higher number, um, that they were comfortable with that number. That might be surprising. And then two, um, they were having difficulty delivering um, and that this gives them breathing room. Uh, and then I guess maybe the third point would be, you know, it's, in, it's you know, for an indefinite amount of time, who knows? I mean, these things change, right? So um, you get, you know, a new administration, some, some new personnel and decision-making roles, and maybe this all changes. But uh, I, I did find it fascinating that, you know, kind of it was, you know, the scuttlebutt was they, they weren't really lobbying for that higher number anyway. So take it, take it for what it's worth. <laughs> that's uh, that's always interesting. Sash, uh, anything you want to add to that, as well as uh, the Franco-Greek deal, and what do you think it means? Uh, I'll, I'll focus on I'm Franco-Greek deal. Um, three frigates, another six Rafales. The Rafales has been known for um, uh, has been known for about the last six good six months or so. This uh, this is an add-on to the original uh, Rafale uh, purchase, and. And three uh, frigates, three. right? The deal does include three frigates. Yeah, the, the, the three frigates. Three frigates is a very, very clear uh, demonstration of how stressed the Greeks are about the, uh, you know, the rivalry with Turkey and the Aegean. 
and they need modern warships because they feel that the Turks are trying always to, you know, to be very aggressive in terms of uh, oil drilling around Cyprus and you know, just pushing the boundaries. Um, I take issue with the economists' view that there is a sort of Franco-German uh, rivalry here because actually every German company that I speak to uh, says we can't export to, to Turkey. Um, uh, you know, Turkey is effectively off limits now to German companies uh, because uh, you know the Turkish government is just seen as being not of uh, you know being you know not particularly pro-European uh, and particularly um, uh, democratic government by the standards of, of Germany. So I, I I think the idea that somehow the Germans are arming the Turks and the French are arming the Greeks, I, I don't buy that. I think they. I think the Germans would happily arm the Greeks as well when their turn comes around. We have uh, about two minutes left. Give me 30 seconds on a European view of F-35 at this point, given uh, what uh, Richard had to say. Um, it's been a slightly, I mean, I, I think Richard's absolutely right about, you know, every, uh, you know, the, the Swiss deal is still not done and dusted. The most interesting one is going to be uh, Finland uh, coming up in the next uh, probably in the next two, two and a half months or so. Uh, that's a big order, that's 64 aircraft. And um, it seems to be very odd if uh, Lockheed were to win Finland and still be uh, keeping uh, total production in sort of the, the mid-150s because you know, 60 aircraft a year, that should be, uh, or 60, sorry, 64 aircraft in total, that should be at least, yeah. Ali? Oh, good. Okay. Yes, you. No, you sorry, ended. I, I, okay. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, well done. Yeah. Yeah. No. I. I thought we. I thought we no, lost that a, you. That was a full. That was a full stop at the end of a sentence. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. No. 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 It was terrific. Well done. Well done. Sorry, I missed it. Uh, and we've got about a minute and a half uh, left. Um, Richard, what do you think Jim Takelet's uh, statement meant? Uh, obviously, a lot of uh, discussion on what. Uh, the Skunk Works facility is in Palmdale. Uh, the company has talked about it as an agile manufacturing facility, but they've been very unspecific about what uh, the program is going to be there. Then we have this uh, statement that whatever it is that's happening there um, will will have several domestic customers for it. So it, it seems as though, you know, is it an effector, right? A lot of discussion about whether it's a hypersonic weapon. Is it a reconnaissance capability that's potentially penetrating? Uh, and, you know, uh, uh, Jim also said that this could have uh, internet, there's international interest in one potential uh, overseas customer. What do you guys make of this, aside from it just being some good old-fashioned uh, interest building on the part of a CEO that's got a jewel of a business that goes from strength to strength? Yeah, you know, it's, um, to me, fascinating. Skunk Works to survive, you know, it went through a really bad patch in the mid to late 90s. I remember sometime around then I paid him a visit and it was, I think the HQ had been moved to a strip mall somewhere in uh, yeah, some godforsaken place. But boy, have they come roaring back and it's a capability that's pretty much unmatched perhaps in the world. Uh, what could it be? Oh boy, the world is their oyster. I mean, obviously it's it could be an expendable, it could be a prototype, it could be an actual platform, a scalable series of platforms for everything from strike to electronic warfare to, of course, reconnaissance. You know, we there's just no way of knowing. But in terms of being a full service house that can do prototypes, limited production or pre-series production of pretty much anything, uh, yeah, I mean, just an unmatched set of, set of capabilities. 
Um, you know, exactly right. You know, there is some speculation about a penetrating reconnaissance capability uh, and how that could be particularly um, important in, in this uh, in this count, uh, uh, context. So shout out to Jeff Babione and the entire uh, Skunk Works uh, team uh, as they uh, go into their eighth uh, decade. Thanks so very much for joining us, guys. Really appreciate it. Hope you guys have a great week and looking forward already to having you back on again next week. Thanks a lot. Great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah, thanks so much, Vago. Really appreciate it, Vago. Have a great rest of your weekend. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.